Here we go. Episode 73. Wow, what an incredible two years it's been with this podcast. Today, I am talking to Brittany Bergman. She's the author of Expecting Wonder. And if you're super curious about inductions, planned inductions, planned epidurals, and how a doula can help you, this episode is for you. Brittany shares with us two birth stories. So let's get to it. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. You guys, my book is out. I mean, it is out in the world. I cannot believe it. I have been writing it for several years and it's just mind blowing. Birth Story Pregnancy Guidebook and Journal is a -a one-of-a-kind discovery into your pregnancy that provides you education through storytelling. So what's it really about? In the 16 years that I have served women with every personality type, I noticed there was a huge disconnect between what my clients were craving for childbirth education in a book and the books that were actually available on the market. There seemed to be unlimited resources If you are looking for an unmedicated birth or a natural birth or a home birth, but there just weren't a lot of resources for my clients who were part of the 92% of women birthing in a hospital and very much open to medical interventions like an epidural, nitrous oxide, and opioid medications. So I wrote that book to fill the gap for you. Week by week throughout your pregnancy, you will engage with material meant to educate and empower you as you plan for your own birth story, hospital, medicated, unmedicated, or something in between. You are welcomed each week with a postcard from the womb, which is an adorable note from your baby about their miraculous development, as well as the amazing changes occurring within you. Then you are invited to use an uplifting birth affirmation and to respond to an introspective journaling prompt to document your feelings, curiosities, and wonders every single week. With room to memorialize your own birth story, this book will become a memory keeper and a legacy gift for your baby. You are encouraged to read one of my favorite birth stories each week filled with childbirth education, tidbits, and explanations of important medical terms and procedures. These are real-life accounts shared with permission from the births that I've attended during my career as a doula. And I gave you a great mix. 
In the 42-week guide to your pregnancy and 42 birth stories, seven of them end in cesarean section. About half are unmedicated and the other half are medicated deliveries. This is a judgment-free book. So take what you need from each element and leave the rest. Okay, are you ready to buy? I would love for you to go to birthstory.com and buy it directly from me. But I totally get it if you're an Amazon girl. You can head to amazon.com and just type in birth story pregnancy and the book should pop up. I'll deliver it straight to your doorstep. And I would venture to say that you might be an audiobook kind of woman because you're listening to a podcast. So if you would prefer to listen to this book, then I have recorded it and it is available for download at audible.com or on your Audible app. Thank you for being part of the birth story community. I am so excited for you to have this book in your hand once you've purchased it and it has arrived. I hope that you will give me your thoughts and feedback and don't forget to take a selfie with your book and post it on Instagram and tag at birth story podcast. Welcome, Brittany. Hi, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. And I'm very excited to interview another author on this podcast, someone who is focused on taking care of moms and to the point of writing about it. And I know we're going to dig into your birth stories with your daughter, Selah, and your son, Eamon, and both of those inductions. But before we do that, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself and about your book, Expecting Wonder? where we can find you, what it's about, all those things. Sure. So again, my name is Brittany Bergman. I live in the suburbs of Chicago with my husband, Dan, and our two kids. Selah is now four, almost five, and Eamon is 15 months old. And I work full-time as a book editor. I work on nonfiction books like memoirs and you know, self-help, spiritual living, stuff like that. And then I just published my first book with a different publishing house than the one I work for. That book is called Expecting Wonder. And I got the idea for the book when I was trying to conceive my daughter, my first child, and I was feeling all sorts of things about it. You know, I wasn't sure, like I'd never had that experience of, oh, I've always wanted to be a mom. I'm so certain of this. I know that I'm going to be a good one. And I was worried about trying to conceive after seeing my friends struggle with infertility and miscarriage. And I was just terrified of what having a baby would do to my life and to myself. I wasn't sure what was going to become of my identity after this. And as I looked for support, as I looked for stories of women who had felt all those big feelings about pregnancy and identity transformation, I just couldn't find any. I found a lot of medical books about how to have a healthy pregnancy or you know, what to expect from pregnancy. But what I wanted was just a friend, a friendly voice, a gentle companion who would come alongside me and say, yes, I have felt the things you're feeling. And not that everything's going to be okay, but that you're, you're going to like who you become on the other side of this. And so in the absence of that book, I decided to write it myself. So I furiously took notes through my whole first pregnancy, hoping it would turn into a book. And now it is. So it's the memoir of my experience being pregnant for the first time and making sense of that deep, deep identity transformation. I love the concept. And also the book is outstanding. For anyone listening, I highly recommend that you get it, even if you are on like your fifth child, because this idea of becoming, this idea of transformation, I mean, this book really is a comforting friend. It's It makes you feel 
as if you are not alone on this journey. And so well done, Brittany, in writing Expecting Wonder. Um, Thank you. That was totally my goal. So I'm I'm glad it landed that way. Yeah. Well, we're going to do a giveaway too when this episode launches. So let's make sure everyone goes to Instagram at Birth Story Podcast. And then Brittany, what's your Instagram? Yes, you can find me at Brittany L. Bergman on Instagram. Awesome. Well, we're going to do a giveaway. So if you're listening to this episode in a timely manner, then we hope you'll go to our Instagrams and maybe you'll get a copy of Expecting Wonder delivered to you. Now let's dig into your birth stories and see what all we can learn from Brittany today. This episode is going to be especially powerful for anyone who has an upcoming induction or knows that induction might be on the table for their births. Brittany, you were induced with both of your children. And so we're going to really dive into your birth story with your second child, Eamon, where you were induced at 40 weeks and three days. But I was hoping that you may just give a quick overview of Sayla's birth and how it came about getting an induction at 41 weeks and five days along. Yes. So with Sayla's birth, I was due in the middle of November And even at my 40 week, like 40 and a half week appointment, I was with a traditional OBGYN. There was just nothing happening, which I know is super common in a first pregnancy. And I had had a a really healthy one. And I also knew that because of the way my cycle is and when I ovulate and when I typically would either get my period or get a pregnancy test, I had a feeling that I'd be a little bit late with her, that maybe my due date wasn't quite accurate. So I was expecting to go over. But yeah, just nothing was happening. And even when it came time to schedule my induction, we ended up scheduling that because the week of my induction was Thanksgiving. And we didn't want to get into a situation where my doctor was unavailable or on vacation or, you know, there were just a lot of moving pieces. And I was a bit nervous. So and getting increasingly uncomfortable. So I decided to just go ahead and schedule that induction, hoped that I would go into labor on my own, and that did not happen. So I ate a big Thanksgiving dinner and then went to the hospital that night for Cervidil to try to soften my cervix and start to efface it a bit. And then the idea was that I would start Pitocin in the morning and on Friday morning. And the Cervidil unexpectedly actually put me into labor. I started laboring with my daughter around midnight. And I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself, but that's that's kind of how I came to be induced with her. Okay. Well, a couple of things. Number one, wherever you're at listening, it is very common to go into the 42nd week of pregnancy. And I myself, if anyone's been listening for a long time, birthed my first at 43 weeks. And so 41 weeks and five days along is a, that's actually like a really great time for an induction. It's not too early. It gives your body the opportunity to have your cervix ripen. So I'm guessing, Brittany, from your story, that when you went into the hospital on Thanksgiving night, that your cervix was not ripe. And so that's why they had to to start cervical ripening with Cervidil. And when I have my clients that go in for an induction, one of the things that we coach on is that an induction can take several days, up to five days. And that I typically would say two to three days is the average length for an induction when cervical ripening is needed. And in your case, it sounds like your body was at 41 and 5, your body was ripe and ready. So it just had a little bit of a push 
and then went into labor all on Mm -hmm. your own around midnight. So that's the most ideal situation. But for anyone listening, I do want to like set that expectation that if you go in for cervical ripening, it's typically like that first night and that next day, we're just trying to ripen and soften your cervix. If you're, there's a score called a Bishop score. If your Bishop score shows that maybe your cervix is thick and closed, you would need to start with that step before moving on to the next stages of induction, which can be Pitocin, a Foley bowl, breaking your water. I mean, there's different things. So in Brittany's case, this was amazing. Your body was actually really, really ready for this induction and for birth. And so just a little bit of Cervidil, which is a prostaglandin, put you into labor. So tell me about what it's like to eat Thanksgiving and to like go to the hospital and think, you know, maybe this is going to take a couple of days, but within a few hours, you were in labor. I was shocked and I was so glad that I had had a decent size snare. It was actually really hard to eat because I was so nervous, but I knew that being in a hospital setting and having an induction that I'd probably be cut off from food earlier than I would have preferred. So I definitely got my energy up and even snuck a little food in the hospital overnight before things really got going. And I'm so glad that I did. So I had even taken it, the the nurse offered me an Ambien to help me sleep. So I had the, I had taken this sleeping pill and then suddenly I was up at midnight and I knew, okay, this is it. I'm not going to be able to sleep again because the contractions actually started coming very close together, even though I wasn't yet on Pitocin. And so that was really keeping me awake at the beginning. They weren't super intense yet, but they were coming very close. So I was only getting about 60 to 90 seconds of rest in between contractions at that point, which was not ideal. It was very, very tiring. Did they take the Cervidil out? No, they did not. They kept it in. Okay. Well, that's something to note. It's between you and your provider. But if you are on Cervidil and you sort of go into like this labor pattern on your own, you can always ask to have the Cervidil removed too. Now, most people, if you're like me, and it sounds like Brittany, when we are going for an induction, like we're ready to have a baby and we don't necessarily want to go backwards by taking the Cervidil out. So you can keep it in, but I just want everyone to know you can always ask to have it removed if you feel like any induction method, even Pitocin, you can have the Pitocin turned off. So if you feel like you're laboring on your own, you can always have some of these induction methods come to an end. So tell me about when the Cervidil, did they take it out 12 hours later? Did it fall out at some point? Yes, it fell out and we didn't quite realize it until the doctor checked me the next day. Like it it had just kind of worked itself out and then she pulled it out the rest of the way when she was doing my check. This was around 9 a.m. So when the nurse on duty checked me the night that I arrived at the hospital Thursday night, I was at about 1.5 and 50% of face. And so I labored from about midnight to 9 a.m., increasingly close and increasingly intense contractions. My water had not broken yet. And because they were coming so close together, I was like, oh, maybe I'm progressing really fast here because I remembered from my labor class that once the contractions get consistent and close together, you're getting pretty close to the end. And I had never experienced labor before, so I didn't realize that the intensity of my contractions was nothing like it would be during transition. 
but I was like, this is great. Like I'm, I'm working hard, you know, this is difficult, but doable. And the doctor's going to check me at 9am. Like my body was so ready. This is, everything's great. And I'm pretty tired at this point. It had been, you know, nine hours plus I hadn't slept yet. I was so tired. And so she announced that I had gone from a 1.5 to a two. I was so defeated. I just started sobbing and I was just so heartbroken, didn't know how much longer I could keep doing that. And she watched me labor for, a, she was very comforting and very kind. She's like, you know, you have been working hard. Of course you're exhausted. Let me watch you labor for a little bit. And she watched me and she's like, you know, you're really fighting against these contractions and I can tell you're exhausted. I think what we need to do is get your body to relax. So She's like, we'll start your Pitocin drip. We're going to break your waters to increase the intensity of the contractions and really get baby's head to bear down on that cervix. And she knew that I wanted an epidural anyway. I wanted to get as far along as I could without it, but I was also desperate for some rest. And she goes, if you're comfortable with it, we can do the epidural early. And, you know, I had pushed back a little bit because I was like, well, I thought, you know, you're supposed to wait until six, seven centimeters, whatever, to get the epidural so things don't slow down. And she's like, honestly, I'm just not concerned about that with you. Your body is so ready. You know, we've got you on the Pitocin drip in case anything slows down, but like you're leaving here with a baby today. And why don't we get you the most rest that we can? So I said, great. You know, it's a long process to even get the epidural. So I knew I had probably an hour ahead of me still. So I didn't want to get to the point where I was desperate and then have to wait like another couple of hours. So she broke my water and I could not believe the change in intensity. Like almost instantly, I just felt like my whole body had just been taken over by these contractions. And honestly, it was scary up until this point. I felt very out of control. It felt like everything was happening to me. And so I felt very in control of the decisions I was making with my doctor, but I felt like I was not connected to my body. It was scary. I was fighting against it. I didn't really know what to expect. And what I didn't realize until after was that that being closed up and fighting against my body was what had prevented me from actually making a lot of progress during that time. So that kind of gets into the birth of my second baby, trying to reverse that cycle of like fear and pain and clenching and sort of keeping everything tight. I want to dissect and just what you said, as we evolve into your second induction and your second birth and how that was like your thinking and your strategies were, you know, pivotal in the success of having like a really good second birth. Hey, it's Heidi. I'm interrupting the podcast to let you know about a free resource that I've created for you at birthstory.com. All you have to do is go to birthstory.com and then click the tab that says the workbook. Once you put your email address in, an entire resource library of all of my secret sauces are available to you for free as my thank you for listening to the Birth Story podcast and being part of this community. At birthstory.com, under the workbook, you will find a birth plan template, articles on circumcision, delayed cord clamping, flipping a breech baby, packing your hospital bag, acupressure points, placenta encapsulation, and so much more. There are over 20 free articles ready for you to download at birthstory.com. Now let's get back to this amazing episode. 
So a couple of things that I heard while you were talking is that, first of all, the Cervidil itself can cause really hard, strong surges that aren't necessarily active labor. How we define active labor is really, some will say four plus centimeters, most will say six centimeters. So really that Cervidil that's causing cervical ripening, the way that we achieve cervical ripening is through contractions. And so getting that head applied to the cervix to put pressure on that cervix and engage in the pelvis really helps to thin and open the cervix. So going from one and a half to two, and I'm going to venture that you went from 50% effaced to 80 or 100% effaced. I don't know, but I would guess that you went, yeah, that the majority of the progress in an induction with Cervidil, the majority of the progress that you're going to see is in effacement the thinning of the cervix, not so much the dilation. So going from one and a half to two is cervical change in progress. That's really good. But the fact that you essentially probably went from 50% of face to 100% of face and allowed that cervix to fully thin so that it could open is what was achieved. And so to hear you say like you felt so defeated and so heartbroken, this is one of the hardest things of my job of being a doula, Brittany, is that I have to coach over and over and over again everything that we've heard in the media and on TV and even in some childbirth education books is that it's all about how dilated you are. And I have to tell my clients over and over again, if we get to the hospital and you are 50% effaced and then you go to 80% effaced, that's huge change. Like I'm sitting on the side of the bed and I would have been saying to you like, Brittany, This is amazing. Your body fully thinned out, like all of those surges and all of that hard work. It did exactly what it was supposed to do, which was get you to a hundred percent effaced. Now, today's labor is about opening your cervix and getting the head to come down. In my opinion, your body did exactly what it was supposed to do, but it is a very hard job of the partner or the mom or the doula, your care provider to help you not feel defeated when we're so used to hearing two centimeters, four centimeters, six centimeters, and so much of early labor has nothing to do with cervical dilation. So I just wanted to make sure that I said that, like, please don't be defeated, everybody. (laughs) When you have cervical change, it's huge progress. And the longest part, the longest part of labor is the effacement in those early centimeters. And then from there, it starts to go really quickly. I love that you knew what you wanted for your body and that you knew you wanted an epidural and that you were desperate for rest. And I love your doctor's perspective that she was like, no, you are ready to go. There's no reason to delay this epidural for this birth and what you had wanted for that. And so I know we're going to get into a different story with Eamon's birth, but I wanted to just stop right there and talk about that. So before we get into Amons, could you walk everybody through what it was like to get an epidural? Yeah, um, it was way less scary than I had thought. The anesthesiologist came in and, you know, the longest part of the process is signing all the paperwork and, you know, getting, letting the anesthesiologist get all set up. Because my contractions were so close together at that point, I was worried about how hard it would be to stay still. That was by far the hardest part because you have to kind of crunch over in a C shape on the edge of the bed and you can't move because they're inserting a needle into your spine. And so 
it was probably about two contractions through which I had to just breathe and not really move. But my husband was allowed to stay in the room both times, which I don't know if that's common, but he was sort of my support. You know, he sat right in front of me and I held on to his shoulders and he helped me to stay still. And I hardly even felt the needle going in, probably because of the intensity of the contractions. And then it got taped up and I was able to lay back. I'm very glad that I got the epidural both times. I wouldn't change it because especially with this first one, it allowed me to get about four hours of sleep before I pushed. And it did break that cycle for me of being tight and closed up because in the hours, I got the epidural at 10 a.m. And then by noon or one, I was at an eight. So I went from two to eight in those two hours. And then we let my body kind of labor down since I was getting good rest anyway. The baby's head wasn't quite low enough for me to start pushing. I was still pretty numb. So I got a lot of good rest that afternoon. The only issue that I had, though, was that it only took to one half of my body. And this was true in both birth stories, my daughter and my son. And so I don't know if it's just something about the way my spine is. But yeah, it only took to one half. And since I wanted to get a lot of rest, I kept asking for booster shots so that it would numb both sides. But then I ended up very, very, very numb. And it took a super long time to wear off. And so I think that my pushing was unproductive at first because I had so little sensation and it did wear off. And so when it finally wore off was when I started to make a ton of progress pushing her out. So with my second birth, and I can get more into that in a bit, but I really, I still wanted the epidural, but I wanted to avoid that particular experience. So I pushed with her, started pushing at 4 p.m., And her head was still up a little bit high. I was still a bit numb, you know, starting to get that sensation that I really needed to bear down even through the epidural. And I had just kind of been laying there all day and I needed to do something. I needed to get to work. I needed to get her out. And I really wanted to capitalize on that feeling and on that energy. So I had an amazing nurse working with me, helping me learn to push productively So it took about an hour and 40 minutes before my daughter was born. And I would say I made very, very small bits of progress in that first hour and 20 minutes, just moving her head a tiny bit and a tiny bit. She was stuck behind my pubic bone for a long time. And I remember past the hour mark, I was just getting starting to get so defeated. And the nurse was like, look, once you get her head over the pubic bone, like there is no stopping her at that point, I'll be able to see everything. I'll see her head. And when I call in the delivery team, you'll know you're there. Like just like just get to that point and you'll be okay. I also kept like lifting up my hips. And so I would bear down and then lift up. And it was sort of like sucking the baby's head right back up. And she's like, you know, maybe this visual will help. Try to push the the baby's head right into the hospital bed. Try to keep those hips down. Imagine you're pushing all the energy into her head and down into the bed. And once she did that, something in me switched. And I was like, okay, now I know what to do. I can, I can absolutely do that. And so <laughs> within the first push, she's like, oh my gosh, okay, she's over your pubic bone now. I can see her hair. You know, she's got the same color hair as you. And um, like, let's get the delivery team in here. This baby is is coming. And I just felt such a sense of relief 
I'm actually going to backtrack for just a second because it was in that first hour that I started to feel so defeated and so exhausted again, even though I had gotten some rest. Like it's a lot of work, you know, pushing through these contractions. And I just, I felt like I had very much reached the end of myself. And I looked at Dan and I just said around the hour mark, I said, I just want to die. Like, I can't do this anymore. I have nothing left. Like, I would rather die than keep doing this. And it was at that moment that I remembered every single birth story I'd ever heard. The woman reaches this point of feeling like death is preferable to life and that there is absolutely nothing left. And it just filled me with this electric energy as I imagined like my best friend getting to this point in her labors with her two kids. And when I pictured my mom at that point, and then like all these images of women across space and time and history, billions of women had all reached this point of feeling like, I can't do this anymore. I like, there is no way for me to do this anymore. And yet they did. And so it was those images of these, like this true sisterhood that I felt like I get emotional just thinking about it. And I was like, that was what provided me the energy to keep going, to connect with my body one more time, to really push with everything that I had. And so that plus the sort of new mental image about how to connect with my body and make that pushing as productive as possible. Like it just, it fueled me the rest of the way. And within just a few minutes, she was, she was out and she was on my chest and it was incredible. I love the way that you speak and your book is just as beautifully written. I mean, hearing you just gave me goosebumps all over my body, Brittany, as I was like really right there with you envisioning like the birth of Selah. And what came to mind for me is that on average, 233,000 women are giving birth every day. And so I remember in my own birthing time thinking, Women all over the world are birthing with you right now, Heidi, mm -hmm. 233,000. And I had this moment in my second birth where I closed my eyes and I imagined locking arms with them. And I was like, we are in this together. Like we can do this. That gave me chills to think about. It's so beautiful. It's just incredible. No one exists in the world who hasn't been born to their mother and it's just, it's one of the most beautiful and universal and also deeply personal acts. Yeah. Um, I just, there's nothing else like it. And I think what's really important too, is that getting an epidural isn't going to take away from anyone experiencing that electric energy. Like mm -hmm. birth is birth. It is a becoming, it is a surrendering. Everyone experiences it differently, whether it's unmedicated or medicated. And I just want to encourage anyone, no matter what path you choose or whatever labor, whatever way your labor unfolds, be it a spontaneous or an induction, that you too will have the opportunity to experience this becoming even with a belly birth. There is a moment where you have to surrender to whatever is happening. And it's in that moment of surrender that we become mother. I just love everything that you said. I think there was so much to learn from you about pushing productively. I think it's the mind-body connection. If you can just get that good visual. With an epidural, on average, it we push for one to four hours. 
So you were on the shorter side of pushing. It is quite exhausting, but the longer that we push like that, it can really help stretch the perineum, help squeeze the fluid out of the baby's lungs. And so that's another thing for those that may be pushing for an hour, two, three hours is to think about how healthy that is for your baby is getting exposed in the vaginal canal to all the good bacteria. Their lungs are getting squeezed and they're stretching your perineum to help avoid, you know, significant tearing. So, so thank you for sharing about Sela. I want to dig into Amen's birth also because you had this experience and it was beautiful. But there were some things about that birth that left you unsettled, it sounds like, and that you were craving a different experience with the birth of your son. So tell us a little bit about how you conceived and then how your pregnancy went with Eamon. Yeah. So there were some obstacles in our way when I was ready to have a second baby. It took me a long time to feel ready. A huge part of what became my birth story with Eamon is that about a month after I had Sela, I had some sort of some pelvic trauma and that I think was brought on by the pelvic trauma of birth. So if this, I'm assuming there's no such thing as TMI when we're talking about birth stories. No, it's an explicit podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So take this as like the number one piece of advice I give to moms who are about to have their first babies is take stool softeners and don't stop too early. And so I ended up getting a terrible anal fissure, which is when you're having a bowel movement and maybe the stool is a little bit too hard and it actually creates a small tear in the anal canal. And that was for a lot of reasons. Like I was still very tight from the pelvic trauma of birth. So those muscles were not relaxed enough when I was using the bathroom and I was so dehydrated from nursing. I had stopped taking my stool softeners wasn't really doing anything diet-wise either to try to keep myself regular. And it was just a terrible confluence of events that led to it. And it took me probably, it took six months to start healing from it and then a 12 months to be fully healed from it. So every time I went to the bathroom, it was just horrendous. And I'm sharing this even though it makes me cringy to talk about it because I know so many other women who have had this happen to them And once I shared my story, they felt like it was safe to share because there's just still some stigma around, you know, we can talk about all things related to like the vagina and childbirth. But when we start talking about, you know, other parts, it it gets a little bit weird. So I just want women to know that if they're feeling that, that they are not alone. And so that experience day in and day out as I recovered postpartum was so difficult. And I really... I don't know if this was true, but part of me wondered if I hadn't done so much intense and unproductive pushing, like, could it have been different? And so I was really scared to give, you know, to get pregnant again, to give birth again, to push again, because I didn't want to have that same experience in postpartum recovery because it was just so hard. So all that to say, when we were ready to get pregnant with Amen or ready to get pregnant, We had to wait a while because we had both been exposed to Zika. And then when it was safe to try again, I got pregnant very quickly. I got pregnant the first month we tried. And then I had a miscarriage right away at like four and a half weeks, five weeks. And then... (laughs) I'm going to have to stop you really quick. Where were you exposed to Zika? We went to Thailand, just my husband and I. 
about when my daughter had just turned two. We went on vacation there together. And then I don't remember like what year this is, you know, what year was with the Zika virus? So that was 2017 or 2018. I can't remember. I can't remember. I had Eamon in 2019. So that was the end of 2017. End of 2017. Okay. Because now we're just all consumed with the coronavirus pandemic that I'm like, oh yeah. Zika. It's like a distant memory now. Hopefully, hopefully soon coronavirus will also be a distant memory. But you were exposed, didn't become ill, but just were exposed. Okay. Got it. Just because we were in the area, like neither of us really, I can't remember getting a mosquito bite, but because we were in a high risk area, my doctor advised us to wait six months to begin trying. So, so we waited six months. I got pregnant right away, miscarried very early, but because it was such an early miscarriage and it happened naturally, my doctor said that I was clear to start trying whenever I was emotionally and physically ready for that. So we started trying right away the next month. So that was like two weeks later. And then a week after my fertile period, I had an emergency appendectomy. No. So I, yeah. Oh my so goodness. I took a pregnancy test in the hospital, you know, before having a CT scan, before going under, even though the anesthesia would have been safe. And the pregnancy test came back negative. So I told the doctor, I'm like, there's still a chance. And he's like, you know, you're in an emergency. Like we have to get this appendix out of you. And so if there's a, this small possibility that you're pregnant, it probably just won't stick. And so I, you know, I was like, okay. So I have the surgery and then three days later found out that I was pregnant. And that, wow. that positive test became Amen. So Did you call the surgeon? No, but I should have. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if there was like a follow-up needed or anything like that. So, oh you my gosh. I did see him for a follow-up and now I can't remember if I told him. I can't remember. That's funny. You're the only person I've ever like met, heard of anything that had like a ma- I'm sure this happens a lot, but like that had a major surgery and then a few days later found out that they were pregnant. I bet yeah, that was, was such crazy. a weird thing to be in like the fog of recovery with a two-year-old and then finding out that you're pregnant again. And I felt like I still had a bit of emotional whiplash because I had only miscarried like three or four weeks before that. So it was a lot. It was a lot to handle in the span of a month. Yep. It is very common. You are hyper-fertile after you have a baby, be it with a miscarriage or a live birth. And so there are many reasons why we say not to have sex for six or eight weeks after you give birth of any kind. Also, you are hyper fertile. <laughs> so um, <laughs> in this story, I do have many people I've interviewed on this podcast and many clients that had a miscarriage and then within just a few weeks were pregnant again. In fact, I have two doula clients right now that had hired me, um, miscarried, and then literally within four weeks had called me and said, oh, we're, we're pregnant again. We can't believe it. Yeah. So you are in a lot of company there. What an incredible journey to pregnancy. Wow. (laughs) I mean, that is, that's a story right there. So how'd your pregnancy go after you recovered from great surgery? (laughs) Fortunately, that was as crazy as it got. I was much more sick this time around. And I don't know if that's because it was my second pregnancy or just feeling different with a boy or what, but with Sayla, I was 
mildly to moderately nauseous, but with Amen, I was throwing up almost daily and it lasted much longer. It lasted about 16 weeks with him before it subsided pretty, pretty rapidly, actually. And then from there, it was a very, a harder pregnancy than my first, just because my body was different. I carried a little bit different. I got achy and uncomfortable sooner and he was bigger. But overall, it was a great pregnancy, totally uncomplicated. And then yeah, I was induced with him at 40 plus three. And I made the decision before I even got pregnant that I wanted to hire a doula this time around because I had changed so much since the birth of my daughter. I felt much more connected to my body. You know, as I learned to recover from postpartum, as I learned to breastfeed, I just felt like my whole sense of self got bigger as I became a mom. And I wanted a birth experience that would reflect that, even though I knew that I would have another hospital birth that it, you know, I didn't know if it would be an induction or not. But whatever happened, I wanted to have somebody there who could partner with me and be my advocate and help me to remain centered and in my body. And I think that was a key missing piece. And I just didn't know what I didn't know in that first birth. But it felt like I was chasing things down. Like I was always a little bit behind that the contractions, the surges were happening to me that I couldn't keep up that I wasn't in control that I was just sort of reacting out of fear to everything that was happening. And I wanted to feel like I was calm, especially given the pelvic trauma that I experienced in recovery. I wanted to have a calm, empowered and unafraid labor because I knew if I was just scared the whole time, that wouldn't help me. That wouldn't help me recover. That wouldn't help me have the birth that I wanted. And so I hired a doula um, who came highly recommended by some of my friends. And we met a few times before birth and talked about my goals. I mostly just wanted to avoid a long period of purple pushing. And I wanted to, so purple pushing is like when you have to breathe in and hold your breath and push really hard for about 10 seconds and your face kind of turns purple. I wanted to have a much gentler pushing experience and I wanted to have a better epidural experience. So those were my main goals. And so I was induced with Amen at 40 and three. My body was even more ready this time around, which was part of why I agreed to induce even a little bit earlier than I did with Sela instead of waiting it out. At my final doctor's appointment with him, I was already at three centimeters and like 50% effaced. And so I, neither my doctor or I thought I would make it to the induction, which was scheduled for a few days later. And then surprise, I did. But when I got to the hospital, I was at, or maybe I think I was at two centimeters at that appointment. I was at three centimeters when I arrived at the hospital and about 60 to 70% effaced. So I'd made some progress. We did not do Cervidil that time because I was already so effaced and ripe. So I just came in in the morning, they got me on Pitocin and the nurse gave me like the smallest dose. And that was enough. She was like, you just need a whiff of this and your body's going to get going. So my doula met us there and it was so, oh my gosh, especially those first few hours, it was so joyful and so peaceful and calm. It was exactly, you know, what I had been hoping for. The nurse really monitored me carefully, made sure, you know, she knew my story from the previous time I had told her. And she really worked with me to make sure that I was always at exactly the right dose of Pitocin to keep the contractions just the right intensity, not too intense, not too weak, making sure that they're coming at the right intervals. 
And so I just felt so well cared for by her. You know, I read my book between contractions. I watched a little bit of TV. My husband and I and our our doula, her name was Tara. Um, we joked around and we laughed. And the doctor came came in to check me around lunchtime. So I started at 7 a.m. So this was about five hours later. And nothing was really too intense yet. I was not working too hard through the contractions. You know, my doula was helping me sit in different positions and walk around and try to bounce the baby's head down a little bit. And so when he checked me at noon, I was at at that point about a four and a half. And so that was some good progress, especially since my water was still intact. And I was like 80 to 90% effaced. And so I felt really encouraged by that. He decided, he asked if I wanted to break my water. I said, yes, because I wanted, I wanted Eamon's head to bear down a little bit more. He's, you know, he said it was totally my choice and that I would, you know, have a little bit less intensity, of course, by leaving those waters intact, but that if I broke them, you know, it could potentially go a lot faster. So I was just ready to get the show on the road. He broke my water. At that point, I still wasn't ready for an epidural. I felt really calm and wanted to keep going as long as I could. And I had also read and practiced hypnobirthing. So when he broke my water, it really intensified things. And that was when I kind of broke out the hypnobirthing strategies. And that's when my doula really started supporting me physically, reminding me, you know, through the contraction, focus on my cervix, breathing deeply, trying to picture the cervix opening with each surge, and also helping me use some calming techniques, not just breathing. So we ended up playing this like version of categories where my husband would name a category and, you know, of movies, favorite movies or celebrities from the 90s or things like that. And so through the contraction, I would name as many as I could out loud to just get me through that minute. And I felt like between the three of us, it was it was painful and it was intense and it was, you know, harder than anything I had felt during my daughter's labor, but I felt so empowered by it and I felt so in control. So once I got to about 7 centimeters, I got the epidural and the anesthesiologist gave me a very light dose. I think he called it a walking epidural. Even though I couldn't get up and walk around, it was very light. So it just took the edge off the pain. So I felt everything still. It was just a little bit dull. And again, that only took to half of my body. So I felt absolutely everything on the one side. Now, Brittany, your goal, one of your goals in hiring your doula was to have a better epidural experience. <laughs> so yeah. do you feel like it was any better? I do. Yes. Cause that was exactly what I wanted. I wanted to still feel a lot. I wanted to feel everything that was happening. I wanted to have the sensation of some pain. I wanted to be able to interact with my body more closely. I didn't like the feeling of being totally numb. So I wanted to know that I was approaching transition. I wanted to be able to feel my body as I was pushing. So even though it was painful, it was exactly what I wanted. And it just took the edge off enough to give me some energy back. So it was, aside from it having just taken to the one side, it was pretty much perfect. It was exactly what I wanted. And so tell me about once you had the epidural, I think this is a big misconception is that like people think like, oh, if I want to have an epidural, then I don't need a doula. And it just makes me laugh when I hear that sometimes too, oh because God. I'm like, oh, yeah. about 50% or more of my clients 
have an epidural, plan to have an epidural for all of the same reasons, Brittany, that you're saying, because they want to be supported and advocated for and more comfortable and feel empowered and all of these things. So I was hoping you may share with the audience some of the things that your doula Tara was doing for you once you had an epidural to still support you, move your body, help you feel good and focus with your hypnobirthing. Yeah. So she was definitely helping with those calming strategies, reminding me to release my shoulders, release the tension. And she was also coaching me through the moments that were really hard mentally, especially because even though it was a quick birth for an induction, it still felt slow to me in the moment. And so she was there to just say, you know, you're progressing normally. This is what should be happening you know, this is normal, this is fine. And I felt like any time there was even a hint of fear, she could sense it in me. Like she was just, her job was to watch me carefully. And I feel like she just swooped in with what I needed either to hear or the physical support that I needed before I knew that I needed it. She was just so, you know, my job was to be in tune with myself and the baby and her job was to be in tune with me. She also made sure that, you know, because some doctors can be pretty picky about what you consume after you get the epidural. And she was very vocal in advocating for me to get some jello, get some popsicles. You know, my first birth, I was only allowed ice chips. After that, this new doctor that I had the second time was much more lenient. And so I was getting the calories and the sugar that I needed to keep going. And so that was just an incredible experience. And then she also advocated for me when it did come time to push that I wanted to push as gently as I could. And so that was that was a huge help to me too. Did you push in a different position this time? So it sounded like on your first, you were kind of on your back fighting yep. to put your hips in the air versus like push down. What yep. position were you pushing in with your son? I was also on my back, but I was a, the bed was a little bit more upright. I was holding back my legs and she was helping with that a little bit. Um, and then his head, so I ended up pushing longer with him, which was exactly what I was terrified of, but it was, you know, no fault of anybody's. His head was a little bit crooked. And so it was very difficult. We noticed, you know, when he came out that he had the swelling on top of his head. It was sort of at the base of his head rather than at the crown. So we knew that his head was just kind of tucked in a little bit weird. Essentially, when you want your baby to tuck their chin to their chest and curl their shoulders in, but every now and then, like maybe their cord is wrapped around their neck or something and they, you know, will turn their head off to the side. And then now they're engaging your pelvis in kind of a weird way. It's really hard to know until you're pushing if anyone's listening to this podcast and this happens, one of the things you can try is called an abdominal lift and tuck. And it sounds like maybe you were a little too far progressed for this, Brittany, but like if you start to push and you're not making much progress, we typically say literally you lift your belly up and you can, anyone can Google or I'll put in the show notes, the abdominal lift and tuck, but you literally like lift your belly up, which is like lifting the baby up. And it almost helps to disengage the baby from the pelvis and then reposition. So sometimes all a baby needs are literally millimeters. So just yeah. being able to even, even with an epidural, sometimes you can get on your hands and knees um, depending on the epidural. But if someone could get on their hands and knees or roll to their side and lift their belly up, every now and then you can help your baby reposition that asynclitic head 
by just doing a little bit of movement. But usually they kind of, you'll feel the baby kick off of you and they'll wiggle their own head and, you know, they'll figure out how to get in there eventually. So Eamon eventually, you know, tucked his chin and wiggled his head around and came down. How long were you pushing for? I pushed for two hours and 50 minutes, which was about an hour longer. He was also, I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but he was a bigger baby. He was a full pound heavier. And so during that time, I, that was when I started to feel really scared. And I think I imagine that without my doula Tara there, I probably would have been headed for a C-section. I don't know that I would have had the resolve and the calm to actually get through that because it did get a little scary at one point. They were trying to roll me around. The nurses didn't feel comfortable with me doing hands and knees, even though I did want to do that. The epidural was just slightly too strong. I didn't have enough control. And so they were using the peanut ball between my legs, kind of rolling me side to side. But every time they did that, his heart rate would decelerate. So it seemed like back was best for him. And I just, you know, pushing that long, that hard, I was so nauseated. I almost threw up a couple of times because again, I was feeling everything. And I was just exhausted. And so Tara really kept my head in the game, kept me from freaking out. We had a nurse change somewhere in there. And the new nurses were a bit more tough love, which is actually what I needed at that time. And they said, like, you know, his heart rate is starting to decelerate more than we would like. This was at about the two and a half hour mark. We really need you to get him out. Like, you've got to, you know, you've done as much as you can. You've been working so hard. but." Now it's time to channel the angry energy. Like, let's fire this up. Let's get him out quickly. And they never said, you know, you're on the verge of a C-section, but I could feel it because they gave me some oxygen. You know, they talked to me very seriously about how low his heart rate was getting. And so I knew that it was serious that, you know, we need to either get him out. We need to get him out one way or another. So at that point, we tried rolling from side to side again, and that helped to finally get his head in the right position. And again, just like with my daughter, once I got him over my pubic bone, I could feel the difference. I could feel his head coming. I could sense the change in energy in the room. You know, people start bustling around. They call in the doctor, they call in the delivery team, and then my doctor gets scrubbed in. And he's like, wait, don't push, don't push. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been pushing for almost three hours. You can't tell me not to push. But I reminded (laughs) myself that my perineum needed to keep stretching. I didn't want to shoot him out like a rocket right at the end and risk tearing more. I had a second degree tear with my daughter and I didn't want anything more than that, of course. And so I kind of let things stretch, tried to take it calm. And then once he was out, it was like, all the pressure just was instantly relieved emotionally and physically. And I cried when my daughter was born, but I just sobbed and shook. Like I felt like I had been through, I don't know. It felt not quite like a war. I don't want to use that terminology, but I felt like I had fought so hard for him in that pushing and I had done what he needed. And there he was on my chest. And I was just, I was just a wreck. It was, it was incredible. And I ended up having about the same amount of tearing. I had a, a very slight second degree tear with him. 
no sign of the anal fissure as I recovered. Um, my recovery was, even though it was a longer pushing, the recovery was a million times easier with him. Breastfeeding was so much easier. It just felt like everything, that birth story, you know, having my doula's help, being more mindful, it fed into everything. It just made adjusting to life with a new baby. It just made it all so much better and so much sweeter. I mean, I just want to cry hearing your story. It's so beautiful at the end. And like I, as a doula, I have the wonderful experience of watching or being witness to this sobbing and shaking, like after moms have fought really hard for their babies like you did. And especially when you went through everything that you went through, having this beautiful experience, but also like balanced with oxygen and decelerations and a long pushing period. And But Brittany, you did it and you got him here and congratulations. Well, for everyone listening, I mean, I cannot tell you, Brittany is as beautiful a writer as she is a storyteller and sharing these amazing stories with you so that you can learn and prepare for your birthing time also. And we really hope that you will pick up a copy of her book. Brittany, what is the best way to purchase your book? Yes, um, you can find it pretty much anywhere. Amazon is probably the easiest for everybody. You can find it on Amazon. You can also find it at pretty much every online retailer, Target, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, which if you shop bookshop.org, you can support a local bookstore of your choice, which is pretty great. But yeah, if you just Google Expecting Wonder, it should actually pull up all the options for purchasing. You can also go to my website, brittanylbergman.com slash expecting dash wonder, and it will tell you a little bit more about the book and give you links to your favorite retailers as well. I hope everyone will pick it up. And before you go today, I ask everyone about what their favorite baby product is so that moms that are expecting right now can add it to their registry. So what is the one product that you use or or have used that really saved you? Oh, the Solly baby wrap for sure. A friend gifted it to me with my first and then I bought another one with my second and it's just so soft and so stretchy. There is a bit of a learning curve with wrap carriers, I know, but once you get it down, it's so easy to use and it's so comfortable for those newborn days around the house. It just it holds the baby close to your chest. It's such a great product for napping too. You know, he, both my babies loved to nap in the Solly and it freed my hands up to do other things. You know, I was actually working on the revisions for the book. So that Solly saved me when I had Eamon because I would just pop him in the Solly for a few hours at a time and he would snooze and I could knock out like two or three hours of editing work. So I highly recommend that to all my new mom friends. Yep. Especially right now where many of us are going back to work after maternity leave at home. And so I highly recommend the Solly Wrap also. Brittany, it's been such a pleasure and I'm so thankful that you joined us on the Birth Story podcast. And um, I wish you the best of luck with the launch of this book. And I hope we can get it into as many hands as possible for those listening. Oh, thank you so much, Heidi. It was a joy being here with you. And I'm so thankful you had me on. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want 
no matter what that looks like. 